And then he was very blunt. He's like, listen, I'm almost positive you're an engineer. This is a science department. If an engineer comes to the science department, you'll be disappointed. You will eventually leave. And that's going to be bad for you and bad for me. So if you want to come here and be a scientist, by all means, join my lab. Otherwise, I think you should just cancel this whole endeavor. Welcome to the Masters of Data podcast, the podcast that brings the human to data. And I'm your host, Ben Newton. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Masters of Data podcast. We brought somebody on that I've known for a while now, and I've uh, with a new series that we're going to be doing uh, around thinking about observability in that area. Um, the, one of the first people that came to my mind was um, Ben Siegelman. He's the uh, co-founder and CEO of Lightstep. Welcome, Ben. It's good to have you on. It's a real pleasure for, to, to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh like you and I were t- talking earlier, I, I like we do on every podcast. I really like to kind of humanize the guests and also, you know, bring that element of the their background into. And I think, in particular, with you, uh, you and I've, I've heard a little bit and I've talked a little bit with you before about your background. But I'd I'd really love to hear number one how you got into computer science and you got into this whole area. But in particular, how you got to founding Lightstep and why you did that and what problem you were solving. So, you know, tell me a little bit, what's your story? How did you arrive at where you're at? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. I mean, like most of these things, it's, there's a lot of accidents and, and serendipity and everything in terms of how anyone gets to where they are. In school, in college, I mean, I was convinced I would not do computer science. I never took any classes in that in high school. I, I had been, you know, I'd one, one of those kids who was just curious about computers. And so I, I taught myself a little bit of programming and everything. Although in retrospect, what I was doing was like horrific, but I didn't, I didn't have this, <laughs> I didn't have the good sense to realize that at the time. Uh, but I, I did just kind of on a whim take one computer science class my first semester in school. And I just like absolutely, totally loved it, like loved it. And so the next semester, I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll take one more. Maybe that was just beginner's luck. The professor was, and that one was kind of revered. And I thought maybe I just liked the professor. The second class, I actually did not like the professor. He was frankly terrible. And I didn't even go to class, but I loved the work. I, you know, I just spent all my time on the, on the, on the assignments and, and apparently I wanted to be a computer science major. So I went through, you know, um, with that intention. Uh, I started school, uh, in, ni- in fall of 1999. And, uh, in that year, you know, the people around me who were older, in the, in the computer lab, we're all getting, you know, 10 job offers a day or something. So right, right. Of it, and then, and then somewhere along the line during my education, the bottom fell out, uh, in 2001, 2002. And it was a very different, um, environment actually. And I thought I was going to go into, um, academia. It, there's a long story, which I won't tell, but the, sh- the short version is I ended up very, very fortunately and with a lot of luck involved, ended up interviewing at Google in my senior year and got an offer there. And I guess the two stories I tell about how I got to where I am now, one was, you know, Google is an amazing place. And I, I admired the people I was um, working with very much on a, on a personal and technical level, but I had no idea about businesses whatsoever at that point. But in college, all of my summers I actually spent doing music stuff. And although I had had jobs with W2s and stuff, they were like serving ice cream. I'd never worked in an office my entire life. And I remember the first day I was there, I was talking to my tech lead, who's now actually still at Google. He's a distinguished engineer there now. I, I literally asked him if I could go to the bathroom. I, I had no idea what it meant to actually work in an office. 
So it was a really funny job um, for me in many ways. And I was actually pretty unhappy about my work. They had an, an event they did uh, just once, actually, where they, they put you into basically an 11-dimensional vector space based on how long you've been out of school, what languages you programmed in, where you physically sat in the office complex, your reporting structure, that sort of stuff. And they matched you up with the, the person who is literally the furthest from you in this 11-dimensional vector space. And they just set up a half-an-hour meeting with no agenda. And the person who I was matched up with, she was like, a, I guess at the time, probably in her 40s. She was a very distinguished research scientist, and she was incredibly smart. And I just asked her, she asked me what I was working on. I was like, it's not that interesting. Let's not talk about that. What are you working on? And she listed off about five projects that she was kind of dabbling in at the time. And there was like a blob storage thing. There was uh, like a global identity service for Google, a bunch of stuff. And then there's this one thing that was this distributed tracing service that was a prototype that she was working on with a few other people, but she didn't really have time to finish it and it was going to be hard to deploy. And so that was that. And I was just fascinated by that one, absolutely fascinated. And so I was just sort of like, all right, you know, like that sounds definitely more interesting and probably a lot more useful than what I'm doing right now. And so I just started working on this Dapper thing, uh, which was this distributed tracing prototype. And it was very skeletal, but it showed promise. And I just loved it. And it turned out to actually be pretty useful. And I was young and dumb enough to just be willing to tolerate a long, like probably a year plus of just toil to get this thing into production, which involved a bunch of things that have nothing to do with tracing. It was a lot of like, what do you need to do at Google to get something with root access on every single production machine at all of Google? And it turns out you have to go through a lot of toil for that, which makes sense. That's actually really risky. But I spent most of my time doing that kind of stuff, not distributed tracing. But once we got into, into production, it was actually you know incredibly useful. And I was able to build a team around that and that's when I became interested in this overall space. Uh, we didn't call it observability then. We didn't call it microservices then, but it was totally the same stuff. That's when I got interested in the subject. Then the other story I was going to tell about how I ended up where I am, and this is in 2007 at leaving Google and doing what I'd intended to do in college, which is to become an academic. So I was looking into PhD programs and I was looking at computational neuroscience programs and I applied to a few of them and I, I was able to, um, be, I was admitted to uh, several of them and then at that point, they, you know, they fly you out and they try to put you through a dog and pony show. And, and, and the, the spirit of it is to try and convince you to go to these programs since they've admitted you and all that. So I was used to being kind of courted and coddled at these things. And I went to the first, I got into three schools. I went to the first two. It was kind of like that. And then I went to the third one. And it was also like that until the very last conversation I had of the entire visit was with the guy who's going to be my advisor. He sat me down for half an hour and gave me like the most influential career discussion I've ever had of, of my life. And I repeated it to other people as I think it's such great advice. He basically said, you know, there's three types of people like you and me, mathematicians, scientists, and engineers. And he said, mathematicians, they are interested in understanding things that are true or false. They can do their work, you know, in isolation. It's really difficult. It's the most intellectually challenging work of all. And frankly, Four or five people in the world probably actually understand what they're doing. It's that advanced. You, Ben, are not smart enough to be a mathematician. Neither am I. God bless them for their tools. And I was like totally, totally in agreement about that. I love math, but I took it past fail by the end of college. Uh, then he said they're scientists. Scientists are primarily interested in furthering knowledge. And they, they like answering challenging questions because they're interesting. 
and they they are they're asking interesting questions, debating them, going to conferences, discussing their ideas. But it's about the advancement of knowledge and asking questions that are interesting because they're interesting. And then there are engineers, and engineers like building things that are useful and that solve a problem that's important. And if it doesn't work, they want to understand why it broke, how to make it more resilient or bigger or faster. Uh, and that's engineering. And then he was very blunt. He's like, listen, I'm almost positive you're an engineer. This is a science department. If an engineer comes to the science department, you'll be disappointed. You will eventually leave. And that's going to be bad for you and bad for me. So if you want to come here and be a scientist, by all means, join my lab. Otherwise, I think you should just cancel this whole endeavor. And, uh, and I did. I just walked out of there. I'm like, I'm done. I'm done with this entire thing. And since then, I really haven't looked back. I'm just interested in building things that are useful. And that's it, period. And th- that is definitely what motivates me professionally. And that gets to starting LightStep. I just felt like I'd actually come off the heels of trying to build a consumer product that was kind of like social media for introverts. And that's not how I pitched it, but that's basically what it was. And I started a company around that. Total unmitigated failure as a product. I mean, uh, it didn't do any harm, but it, uh, the people that attracted, they did like the product, but they were all depressed introverts yeah. and they wouldn't talk <laughs> about it. So it turns out like that doesn't work. So I was really feeling the the, I was feeling a lot of pain around building something that wasn't that useful. And I just wanted to do something where I felt like I knew <laughs> I could build something that was actually valuable. And so I was thinking through my career and things I'd done. And I just felt looking at the market that there was a lot of pain people are about to experience based on the architecture that they were pursuing, which is basically microservices. And the best way I knew to address that was to build something that um, allowed them to gain more confidence and understanding of their own system. And I mean, I guess that's what observability actually is. And that led to the you know the foundation of LightStep. But our vision for the company since we started five years ago really hasn't changed at all in terms of the, the core mission, which is what I had described to you. And it, it really comes out of a personal desire of mine to do something that's useful and impactful. And this is the best way I know how to do that. Yeah, no, that's that, this is all really uh, this is all really interesting. It's it's um it's funny. I think I realize even more than what you and I were talking before. You and I have. Um, very similar experiences because I, I just wish that someone had set me down and had that talk when I went into grad school because uh, I literally had that same progression is like, oh, I don't want to be a theoretical physicist. I'll be an experimental physicist. Oh, wait, I really like to build useful stuff. Um, no one explained that to me. <laughs> now I go into computer science. But that was after three years of, uh, you know, uh, wasted time. So I think that's a uh, I, I really like that way of, uh, you know, putting together and no, in no sense of, uh, there's, there's no blame. It's just like, look, people are built different ways. I think that's a really cool way of talking about it. it, it one thing I'd be really interested in, you know, even stepping back a little bit, I mean, why, why did you need to do it at Google? And like, why, why is this a problem that people need to solve? Like, what was the glaring issue that meant you had to build something and, you, you know, people were willing to invest that amount of time to build it at, at Google? What were you trying to do? I mean, Google's a funny place and I, I don't want to, imply that what was going on at Google is necessarily the same as what's going on at other companies. I think a lot of their problems were unique to um, the way that they had built their system and their culture, the time it was in, in the industry in general. Like a lot of that stuff was before GitHub was even incorporated. You know, like there was just nothing to use. So you had to build everything yourself. And the problems that, that they were having that I think are also endemic in the industry right now, um, you know, it's a very small percentage of time from an engineering standpoint was being spent on the production of new functionality. I mean, that was basically the problem. I mean, I think, um, 
And then the other problem was that when things were going awry, the only reason that they ever were able to fix it was because they had a couple, like, I don't know, maybe not a couple, but let's say less than 5%, maybe less than 2% of the population there from an engineering standpoint um, knew where all the bodies were buried and knew how to read the tea leaves where, you know, they could run some arcane tool that had arcane output and see something and say, oh, that, that means that this other thing on the other side of the system is having a problem. And that is death for an engineering culture. I mean, the second those people decide to leave the company, you're really in trouble, you know? I mean, I guess if, if they'd been able to train everyone to know everything that those people had known, the um, diagnostic things could have been partially addressed. Um, but that wasn't, that wasn't, it was just literally not feasible. I don't know how to do that. I mean, no one, that's a hard problem that we've never been able to solve from a managerial standpoint. And then, uh, and then the velocity stuff was just really problematic. And I, I think that they invested in a lot of things to solve that. I don't want to claim that observability is literally the only way to do that. It's, it's in the necessary, not sufficient category. I think they also, you know, they, they employed more people at Google to work on their source control system than the vendor that they bought it from. I mean, there are more people working on Perforce at Google than Perforce had employees at one point. They had hundreds and hundreds of people that maintained this very elaborate, highly optimized sort of build CICD kind of infrastructure. And so they were investing in a lot. They had their whole, I mean, nowadays, I think you can see whole companies that have propped up that were teams at Google um, to do various things in the, in the life cycle. But Dapper uh, was uh, initially developed as a point solution, mainly to latency issues. Um, but ended up being quite useful once we fleshed it out for a number of other things. Um, some of them, you know, are sort of obviously an observability like uh, root cause analysis, MTTR, that kind of stuff. But uh, the, te- the core technology was also, uh, it ultimately moved into the storage arm of Google because they found that they could use the context propagation in Dapper uh, to um, help understand where the workloads were, were coming from that uh, in their large multi-tenant storage systems. So if they wanted to have one regional instance of, let's say, Bigtable, you know, which was their um, key value store, they could have one multi-tenant system for the you know 1,000 plus Google SKUs that were out there. And they would all be rate limited to very specific amounts of write and read traffic. So not just the storage, but the actual I.O. that was specific to that storage system. I mean, it basically meant they didn't have to over-provision at all. And that was actually has nothing to do with latency uh, or very oh, only tangentially with latency analysis where we started the Dapper project. But in my mind, if we want to sort of move the clock forward, I think a lot of the advantages of building things like distributed tracing into the core of your software is that you can take advantage of context, global context in many other ways. So it's not just for observability. And certainly my vision for Lightstep long-term is to try and, and do things like that too. Uh, but but having good hygiene about observability and, and telemetry, uh, especially, um, allows you to open doors down the road and uh, resource provisioning, security, etc. So so I think for Google, what we started with was latency, where we ended up with something much broader than that with the distributed tracing technology. Getting to your point about observability, though, I um, it actually drives me a little crazy uh, that people think about observability as distributed tracing or logs or metrics or some combination of those. Those are telemetry only. That's all they are and nothing more. And observability, like, you know, building or buying distributed tracing doesn't really solve anything on its own. 
the thing that you know you should be focused on is almost certainly one of the following, like either improving steady state performance. So, you know, just making things more reliable over time um, in a greenfield kind of way. So month over month, getting mean time to resolution down. So basically instant response and or shipping software faster, just improving velocity. Those are the three things that you can get out of observability. And if your thought process doesn't start with those objectives, no matter what you end up building or buying, um, it's unlikely that you're going to end up with a good result. It needs to be oriented towards those outcomes as a business, or you're just going to end up with a bunch of technology and a bunch of telemetry. And and certainly siloing tracing data from other forms of telemetry is a losing strategy. And you know that even if you buy from one vendor, if those are in separate tabs or something like that, you're also siloing your product experience and your benefits. So I think it all has to come back to those use cases. And, and from a product strategy standpoint, I think that's the right way to build observability um, and the right way to buy it as well. So no, no, I, I, I'm, um, I, I think it, I think it makes a lot of sense. Cause I'd agree with you. It's one of the, you know, I did, there is a, there is a tendency in our industry in general. And I, I don't think this is like, we're unique in this way is that there's a tendency to just throw new words out and be like, well, if I use this new word, then suddenly I'm doing things differently. Whereas it's not really getting at the, um, core of it. And I know when, when I first heard the term coming from a science background, I'm like, that doesn't sound right. Cause you know, when we, we, we would talk about that in physics, we meant a very specific thing, but I, I think the way you to describe it makes a lot of sense. Cause it, it, it also seems, um, you know, there's a couple other ways I've heard of describing it is like, it's, it's, it's a way of doing things that enables you to achieve these goals. Like it's not just about getting a bunch of data and, and throwing it against a wall and hoping something sticks. It's, it's about like, Hey, what are you actually trying to achieve? Like what's, what's important. And, I, and that's something I've always admired, at least what I've understood about the Google culture. And it's not, they're not the only ones who are doing this, but this kind of focus on reliability and, and, and making that like a top line goal is like, look, this is not just about data for data's sake. It's like, we're, we're trying to provide a highly reliable service that is going to, you know, make the company successful and make our customers successful. Right. And that to me is like a core of what observability is. And it sounds like you're kind of in that, in that, in that same camp there. It's not just about the data. It's about achieving your goals. I mean, does that make sense to you? Uh, definitely makes sense in terms of the goals. I would say from a Google standpoint, I hope I'm not, yeah, I've been gone for long enough. I can say this kind of stuff, but I think the way they structured things, it did have a lot of benefits for reliability, but it's actually really problematic in that they're, SRE organization was completely parallel to the engineering product organization, uh, which is to say, you know, from a reporting standpoint, was totally parallel. And in as much as, you know, Google famously uses OKRs, and I, I still have a lot of PTSD about that. Uh, um, <laughs> it's funny, actually, at Lightstep, you know, internally, of course, we, you know, we have to manage our progress as well. And, and I've, uh, we've invented this thing that is basically exactly the same thing as OKRs at this point, but I just can't bear to call it that because I have so much PTSD around it. <laughs> anyway, the, the SRE organization had OKRs, as you would imagine, around reliability, which is totally appropriate, right? It's like that right. makes sense. The development, you know, product engineering organizations had OKRs around what you'd expect, you know, product uptake um, for ads, revenue, that sort of thing. And these things are fundamentally intention, which is fine and nothing wrong with that. But it's difficult. The, the most reliable thing you can do is never change your software, right? So it's right, like, right. That's by far the most reliable software doesn't change. And of course, that will eventually um, lead to the demise of your product philosophy. So there is a natural tension there. 
And because of the way the organizations were structured, it, it was very difficult to trade those things off without it turning into this kind of massive political battle because you had these, you had at some level, I mean, of course it didn't really turn out this way, but, but theoretically in order to resolve that tension, if you were to respect the org chart, you would have to basically go to the CEO of Google or something, which is ridiculous, right? So um, that didn't work so well in some ways. And I think Google did have a really strong reliability culture, but almost at the expense of, of movement at times. And I, I'm, I'm a strong believer in SRE and certainly a strong believer in measuring these outcomes. I think that is best done if, the, um, if both the product outcomes and the reliability outcomes are, are shared by the group of people who are building the software and the people operating the software. In some cases, it's the same group. Um, sometimes it's not. But those should be you know, contracts that everyone agrees to. And I think in the best case, which did happen sometimes, and I saw this myself, which was nice at Google, you had SRE teams and dev teams that actually really did collaborate well. But when things started to go sideways and it would get oppositional, usually the, um, the reliability won. <laughs> and again, I think that was made substantially worse by the fact that people didn't, uh, generally speaking, people operating the software and building the software had very low confidence in how it actually worked, which, which again goes back to, I think, observability. Um, Google, uh, did invent, you know, a number of technologies, some of which have been cited as foundational for observability, but our observability was really pretty poor in my mind. I mean, I think Dapper is by no means the design basis for anything we're doing at Lightstep, and that's intentional. I mean, I have huge regrets about the way that we built that system and the way we built the technology and the architecture of it. And so most of the time, I think uh, developers of complex stuff at Google really were feeling quite uncertain about how their system was behaving. And that only led to like it, it just fed it fed the fire of of like this almost intractable tension between velocity and reliability, um, which, as I understand, uh, has actually gotten worse, not better, in the in the last couple of years at Google. Although I've been gone since 2012, but I think that they had a summer of uh, of you know outages at one point that that led to you know a number of even larger bureaucratic hurdles you had to go over to just push changes out into the world. And you know, that's it's going to hamper their ability to execute. So these things can turn into, I think, company level risks if they're if they're left unattended. You know, it's 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 really interesting to hear you describe it because I've I've um, you know just being in the industry, I've I've heard a lot of these things. But what really strikes me about that is even is is number one how how much people are intertwined with technology choices and, and like how you actually do things. So like you can never pull people out of it. You don't really want to, cause that's part of what makes things innovative, but, and, and how similar it is to the issues that companies were, you know, having in the early two thousands that were not as advanced as Google, like that whole like thing that like DevOps quote unquote was supposed to solve was bringing these two organizations together. Maybe there's just a natural human tendency is when you have those kind of conflicting goals is that, is how you resolve those is, is, is really crucial. Cause it's not like, um, there is a tendency nowadays to kind of look back on the stuff that came out of, you know, the early two thousands.com and the way we build applications back then, you know, when I started out and kind of like poo poo it. And, but the reality was a lot of this stuff developed naturally and there's a tendency to be okay. And, and I remember we would say the same thing. Cause I, I ended up strangely enough, even being a computer programmer on the operation side and we would, we would say the most stable time of our application, one of these projects I worked on was over Christmas because all the developers went home. 
<laughs> you know, it, it was that natural tension, but it was, it's, uh, you know, it's just something that kind of naturally, naturally happens. And I, I, I guess one thing to ask you too, too, Ben, and like as part, as part of this like whole narrative. So like you, you got a chance to be part of something, you know, really interesting at Google. You took that knowledge and learnings and not just repeating some of what you might consider the same mistakes. You went on this journey, um, with Lightstep. Where, where do you kind of see the state of things now? Because I mean, one thing you, you and I have known each other for a few years now, and I've seen you guys develop, and I've seen the industry develop, and it's changed a lot over the last few years. And I, it feels like you're, it, some of this stuff is really starting to take hold. But I mean, from your perspective, particularly just being on the inside, where do you see things now? Like, what's the state of the of the world, particularly like where you're at in observability and distributed tracing in this whole world? Yeah, good question. The number of significant, well known established enterprises that have actually started building what I've been calling deep systems in production. It's just totally different than a, pre- a couple of years ago. And by deep systems, I actually don't love the word microservices because first of all, it just describes a single service. The thing that's interesting is the system and it's the number of layers in the system between the top of the stack and the bottom of the stack. And once that gets to be more than four or five or so, it's really difficult to understand um, exactly how the lower layers of the stack and the upper layers of the stack are interrelated. And it's multi-tenancy becomes the norm either for, you know, your storage systems or for even the communication bus like Kafka. And that means there's a lot of interference effects between different parts of your system and getting to the bottom of that. It's just like really difficult. And it's also incredibly, um, widespread. It's a problem right now. I mean, I see this everywhere I go. So the, the pain is, is really, it's cropping up across the board, I think, for anyone who are, who's building a system like this. And of course, they're doing it to improve velocity. I think that part's actually working, but it's not without some peril in terms of just being able to understand how the system's behaving for any of the use cases we were talking about earlier, uh, you know, releases, latency, uh, MTTR, et cetera. So I've seen that really come to the fore. A couple of years ago, we were restricted to talking to the kind of internet darlings, you know, like the Twilio's and GitHub's of the world that were pushing the envelope on this, but now it's much, much more widespread. So I think from a market standpoint, that's changed. From a solution standpoint, I think that a lot of vendors have realized that there's a need to consolidate to a certain extent and that from a product standpoint, it's necessary to provide a a single tool that can handle some of these use cases end-to-end. Um, I think the way that's being done in many cases is a little cynical, if I'm being honest. I definitely see companies that are basically either through acquisition or through just rapid development are creating a tabbed experience within their product where you have several fundamentally different approaches to observability that you can pay for altogether, but they're really pretty distinct from a workflow standpoint. I think that's a non-solution. I mean, I think from a Darwinian standpoint, it will be selected out anyway. Um, so I'm not like worried about it, but it's just, it's, it creates a lot of noise and there is a lot of noise in the marketplace. And then I also see a lot of confusion about how to approach observability. And for that, I mean, this, this is not, doesn't benefit Lightstep in particular to be clear, but I would certainly urge people to clearly separate the collection of data and the data itself from the solution. And the, the data is telemetry data. I think the Open Telemetry Project, which I helped to create, uh, so I am biased there, but I, I think at this point, we actually found out yesterday that it's, um, it is the second most active project of, I think, you know, 50 something in the CNCF, second only behind Kubernetes. It's an incredibly, incredibly vital project. 
Actually, Sumo has contributed a lot to it lately. It's a great project. There's so many different vendors involved that you can tell that it's not gonna, it's not going to send you in one direction or another. It, it's like an actual, it's a real honest to goodness partnership between a lot of folks that compete but share a common interest in getting this stuff to be more readily available. So the Open Telemetry project, I think, is a really safe bet in the future. Uh, on the future of, of data collection, basically, and making that turnkey and easy. And it also comes with a lot of automatic instrumentation these days. So you don't need to go and like change your code, which is at least not manually, which is really advantageous. So I think separating the telemetry gathering from the rest of it is the first thing to do because people are confusing those. And it's a bad idea, I think, to rely on a vendor because you want telemetry. That, that should be an open source effort. And I would definitely push people towards open telemetry for that. And then on the vendor side, again, I would just try to come back to, you know, spend the time to figure out what problem you're trying to solve. I think we're starting to hear people talk about that, but I have to say there are a lot of conversations we have with folks where we reframe the conversation in terms of, say, software deployment and show how observability can apply to that particular problem. And it's like the light goes on in their head. It's like, oh, that's how this could look. If observability actually knew when my deployments are and actually had features that were designed to explain those. In order to make this easier for people, we built this thing called LightSap Sandbox, which you don't need to pay for. I think you can just go straight into it, um, and you don't need to talk to anyone. Where you can basically, there's scenarios where we say, you know, there's been a bad deployment, figure out what happened, and then you kind of walk through it yourself. But it's all, you know, you can you can also go off the you can go off the trail and just use the product if you want. But it helps you understand how to approach workflows with observability, and I think that's been really useful for people to educate themselves about how observability can apply to these specific problems. So I think that things like that are really uh, useful to kind of stop just reading blog posts or listen to people like me blather on about it, but to actually kind of feel it. I think um, that's a really useful way to understand um, how this stuff can fit together. So um, I think we've, we've seen some lights go on there, but I feel like it's going to be another couple of years, probably before people start by talking about deployments and um, MTTR rather than starting with distributed tracing or how to get metrics and logs to work together or something. That Not that that's not part of the solution, but it's just not where it should start in my mind. Yeah, yeah, no, it makes sense. And I think there's a natural tendency with any new technological shift. It's a lot easier to talk about individual technologies or talk about simple concepts and talk about the really hard stuff because, you know, actually putting it to use and tying it to how you're actually going to change stuff. And, you know, one question that comes to mind, maybe is a good way to kind of put a bow on all this. As part of this, you know, it, like, like you said, it's, it's changing rapidly. A lot in, uh, is changed over the last couple of years and, and definitely with the Open Telemetry Project kind of driving some consolidation. Where do you think we're going to be in this area, like, um, you know, five years from now? I do think open source will dominate the, um, the actual instrumentation and telemetry layer. I'm very confident about that. There's way too much momentum behind that. Even the people who might publicly say they don't want that privately are trying to make it happen because they're spending a lot of engineering hours maintaining um, proprietary agents and, and it's just not that efficient for them. So I'm very confident about that. That's just a when, not if kind of thing. In terms of the solution space, my very sincere hope <laughs> is that we see products that are focused on the workflows and not on the telemetry verticals, um, which I've said a number of times in this conversation. But in addition to that, I would like to see the pricing to be more value-based than it has been. I think a lot of vendors are expressing their pricing, not just primarily, but often exclusively in terms of the scale of the actual telemetry data. Uh, Because the telemetry data can expand in such unpredictable ways, 
my opinion is that that the customer should be basically have uh, control over some kind of um, lever on how much telemetry data they actually want to store. And the observability system needs to degrade gracefully within that. So actually, much like the internet itself during all this COVID nonsense has be- performed really beautifully, I think. It's not that it, it hasn't degraded. It has degraded. Like, you know, Netflix has started to degrade into like 720p instead of whatever it was before. That's exactly what it should be doing. It degrades gracefully within the, the constraint. That's what I'd like to see observability do too. So the customer should be able to say, I want to spend X dollars a month on telemetry. Observability should, whether it involves pre-aggregation or sampling or both, needs to fit within that data budget. And no one should feel like they're paying a margin on top of that. And then what you should be paying for are the benefits of observability. And and what I see right now is people are buying tools that start small because it is based on data volume. Their data volume balloons they've developed a dependency on a particular product or tool and they end up in a negative ROI place. I've seen that with a number of the largest vendors in the space. You talk to their customers, you look at their business, it looks great. You talk to their customers, they're irate. I mean, they're to the point of saying, I am offended by this, you know? And that's not a good place for vendors to be in. I think the pricing units, not just the, the prices themselves, but the way it's all modeled is actually pretty bad for customers. And I think that that might, it's not just about pricing. It's, pricing is an important part of how products are developed. I think it comes down to the architecture and the cogs that these vendors need to account for. But I see that needing to change um, in order you know, to, to make the observability value proposition like a clearly positive one for the many enterprises that need this stuff. So that's another area I see. And the last thing I'll say is that just like I was saying how Dapper's you know, their largest, the largest economic value is actually in storage and resource accounting. I see uh, applications being built on top of the kernel observability way outside of the realm that we're talking about now, certainly in security, which is already starting to happen, but also in resource provisioning and hopefully all the way back into like the software development life cycle and changing the way that, that the software actually works, uh, not just the way that we understand it. So I think closing the loop and having feedback loops where the software is some level able to manage itself based on on the telemetry and some real-time analysis, that's the future of how this stuff will actually um, impact the industry, but that's probably five to 10 years out. Yeah. Oh, that, this is a, I think it's fascinating. I think it's one of the fun parts about being part of this right now is that I think everything's changing so, so fast and there's a lot of things kind of coming together. And I, I think, uh, I think you're, you're spot on with, with, with what you're saying. Well, um, Ben, this has been a lot of fun. I, I think you, your, your background is, is really interesting. I think what, what you're doing now is, is, is really kind of pushing the conversation forward. And I appreciate you coming on. This is, this is a lot of fun. And, uh, thanks everybody as always for listening. And, uh, as always, we love you to rate and review us on iTunes so other people can find us and look for the next episode in your feed. Thanks everybody. Masters of Data is brought to you by Sumo Logic. Sumo Logic is a cloud native machine data analytics platform delivering real time continuous intelligence as a service to build, run, and secure modern applications. Sumo Logic empowers the people who power modern business. For more information, go to sumologic.com. For more on Masters of Data, go to mastersofdata.com and subscribe. And spread the word by rating us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app.